So today is our first episode of Let's Plant Houses, and I have Bill Ernzen, my husband, joining us today. Bill, did you want to say hi? Hello, and uh, thanks for having me. I'm excited about the project that you're doing. It's uh, got the potential to be very cool for a lot of different families. Thank you. I really appreciate that. I'd love to start off with just a little bit of background. Could you start by just telling our listeners a little bit about our family? Sure. We've been married for 21 years uh, this May, uh, and our daughter, Nicola, will be 21 in October. And so she's been a part of our life the whole time that we've been married. Uh, We also have a a younger daughter named Kara Francis, and we have a delightful Aussie cattle dog mix named Ranger, who's lovely. Delightful and lovely are generous terms for the Aussie. And he may try to scratch at the door while we're recording this, and that's okay. That's always possible. That's true. So we have the two kids. You know, I'm thinking that our listeners, based on, you know, who's going to probably listen to this podcast, might want to hear a little bit more about Nicola. Could you start there? Sure. Nicola is a 20-year-old young woman who currently lives in a group home in Lansing, Michigan. And uh, this was a home that is uh, considered adult foster care, and it was specifically set up so that she would have the right behavioral supports she needs to be successful. That's sort of where she is now. Do you want me to go back to the beginning, or do you want to, where would you like me to go? Sure. So for our listeners, Nicola's disabilities, she has autism and bipolar, which has been pretty challenging. At times, it's been amazing too, but you know, it's got its ups and downs. So perhaps it might be helpful to talk just a little bit, Bill, um, about what Nicola was like when she was a baby. Yeah, sure. So, you know, Nick was a, uh, she was a challenging baby right from the outset, right? You uh-huh. know, she was, uh, she didn't sleep well. She didn't really sleep through the night until she was maybe five months old. Mm-hmm. Um, she was delayed at each of the developmental stages, right? Whether it was walking or talking or uh, toilet training, any of those things uh, were behind. Yep. And um, I remember... One day we had Nick um, in a Montessori program here and the teacher said, well, actually, these delays probably aren't normal and you should probably have someone uh, evaluate her to figure out sort of where she was at developmentally. That was sort of the first time anybody outside of the family had said, hey, maybe there's something that is a different path for Nicola than we had seen for other kids. Right. And I think she was two then. And I think she had seven words. And I think that was the concern was that she just simply didn't have that much language. And she'd made that recommendation to us. Yep, that sounds right. We never really had a formal diagnosis process. I know that there's good, I'm grateful that there are much more formal processes now. Can you describe a little bit like the path that was taken to get to even the autism diagnosis, which was our first diagnosis? Yeah, sure. So, you know, one of the first recommendations that we got for Nick was to help get her some occupational and speech therapy. So we identified some therapists who would come to our house and hang out uh, on the floor with Nick and go through any variety of exercises. She was doing that a couple times a week for a period of time to try to help her build some of those base skills. We also visited a developmental psychologist at one point seeking a diagnosis who at that time said, well, I don't really think that it is autism, but it couldn't really tell us what it was. It was this whole... It was PDD-NOS, right? It was, which, you know, we didn't mean... That didn't mean anything to us. Um, um, for the listeners, PDD-NOS is pervasive developmental disorder, not otherwise specified. So just like Bill said, it wasn't really a diagnosis. She was an enigma. We kept getting that throughout her education and through all of the different therapists and things we spoke with. It was, we don't really know how to place who Nicola is within sort of a designation that exists. Right. She did eventually get diagnosed. 
How old was she? Do you remember? I think she was seven. I think you're right. Yeah, I think she was seven. Do you remember how you felt about that? I'd like to think that I felt like it was a relief Mm -hmm. to have some sort of clarity because we had been through asking questions at that point for about five years Mm -hmm. and no one had been able to give us a straight answer in terms of what we should think because that gave us options, right? It gave us a path to go down in terms of behavioral therapies and supports that we could do to support her. And so would you believe that that's probably, if you wanted to describe to others, like how our lives changed, was probably doing a lot of those therapies, trying to seek out things for Nick, you know, just trying to make, just go down that path. Yeah. And, you know, we, um, we had been in one public school, we tried to get into a private school that we thought might have better supports. And we were back in the public school because of what could be achieved via the IEP process, right? That we could get things like social work and OT and PT and speech. They could all be interspersed throughout the school day. But, you know, there was a lot of learning to get to that point, right? To think about how we got those and and got the districts to make time for that. And, you know, at that time, Nicola was not in a designated classroom. She was still in general ed or tried to be in general ed. And then they would pull her out to attend those various uh, therapeutic sessions. So I'm going to move a little ahead because I know that we, you know, eventually found some good support within the schools, which was great because Nicola ended up in an autism, was it called enclosed? No. It was a center-based program. Thank you. An autism center-based program. But what I want to do now is I want to talk a little bit more about what happened when the supports began to fail during COVID. I remember those early days when schools were closed and we had to try to figure out sort of just an, at a basic level, what was Nicola going to do during the day? The four of us with the dog were all in the house. We were all in the same space. And we immediately realized how dependent we had become on Nick being out of the house those five days a week and in the school system, right, and the supports that she was getting. And when the schools were no longer able to be there for her to go to, and we tried to do things like online learning, Nick just pushed back on that so hard, had no interest Uh, You know, we got to the point where we were trying to see if we could get five minutes a day of online connection. But for the most part, there's a great picture that a newspaper or an online news source took of Nick sitting at her Chromebook on her floor in her bedroom surrounded by stuffed animals. And that was what life was like for Nick. And we also didn't then have access to external therapists. We didn't have access to caregivers. So it was a big challenge for us to take that step backwards because we had to go as parents into full-time caregiving mode while we were both still trying to work. Yep. Yeah, that was definitely a very challenging time for our family. And we were so grateful, obviously, when the schools opened up for many reasons, because it wasn't just, I mean, it was all the things that you described, as well as Nicola being able to socialize see friends, make those connections, because she had a really hard time trying to understand what COVID was, why we were home. But just like anyone else, she was lonely. Yeah. And she experienced it just like, and and to articulate, that was really difficult for her. And I think there was a component of this too, which was about the nature of COVID itself. And there was fear that existed Mm -hmm. um, as a parent, because back in 2009, Nicola got swine flu when that was going around. And that ended uh, for people on the spectrum in some cases, that gave them seizures. And Nicola was in the hospital for three days with swine flu because of the seizures. And we didn't know if COVID was going to have a similar 
way to present itself if, in fact, Nick were to get it. So we were hyper cautious about making sure that she wasn't exposed to it. And again, that just added to the stress of how we were sort of living our lives in those early months of the pandemic. Yep, that's true. And then Nicola returned to school. I don't remember exactly when that was because it's a little muddy, but I think it was in 2021. We had some sporadic returns to school, which was wonderful. And Nicola's school team was amazing. And I say was because Nicola now has moved on from high school. But what I wanted to ask you about was, even though Nicola had returned to school, was doing pretty well getting the supports, she seemed to take a little bit of a turn starting of March of last year, so March of 2022. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about that, Bill? Yeah. So, you know, I think it's worth just going back for a minute to talk about the journey that Nicola had been on from a medication perspective. So at that point in 2022, she had been on a sort of continually changing set of medications. And I can't remember what year the first one was, 2011, maybe 2012. Yeah, I think so. And that was with one medication. And then you get to the point where they say, well, one medication is not doing it. It needs to be two. And then two becomes three. You know, she had a period in 2014 where she was briefly hospitalized inpatient uh, because of a medication imbalance. And so... We had seen these cycles where the meds would stop working after a period of time, and we sensed that that was where we were headed in the spring of 2022. And what happened then was, well, we kept you know, a regular conversation with Nicola's psychiatrist about where she had from a meds perspective. We collectively agreed that we would need to make a change. And we started that medication change, and initially it was very positive. But six to eight weeks into that, as we got into the early part of June, it was clear that that medication change we had made was not sufficient. And Nick was demonstrating side effects that were typical in about 10% of the cases of people who took that medication. And and we knew we were going to have to make another change. And so what happened next? It, It was hard to watch, but we watched Nicola's behaviors get progressively worse. And and what we mean by those behaviors is they were pretty destructive and pretty violent behaviors. There was lots of throwing of objects. There was books. She would clear off the kitchen counters and throw all the objects there. She would take items out of the drawers in the kitchen and throw them. She would try to throw things at the dog. She would slam doors and go through the house. And so basically nowhere was safe as she would go on these destructive rants. But it was largely something we only saw in the home. And so we were really surprised when she was out with a caregiver and they went to a a local Coney Island restaurant and uh, Nick walked into the restaurant and immediately grabbed some some plates and some cups and things and started throwing and smashing them and and had to be removed from the restaurant. Unfortunately, the police weren't called in that case, but it was a wake-up moment for us to realize that Nick was also not going to be safe in the community, Mm -hmm. uh, in addition to some of the behaviors we'd been seeing at home. And I think it's one of these things in hindsight that as parents, it's hard sometimes to try to draw that line with your kid. And we were doing the best we could, but in hindsight, we were allowing behaviors that we shouldn't have allowed in the house. We weren't drawing clear enough of a line so that Nick could understand what behaviors were appropriate and not appropriate and tolerated and not tolerated. And then that, I think, started to bleed into what Nick did outside the home as well, because she was starting to say, well, there's no consequence for me throwing things or whatever. Um, I can do that elsewhere, not just at home. And so at that point... So Nicola was becoming, had already been aggressive in the house. And just to give our listeners a little bit more information, I mean, there'd be times that we would barricade ourselves. 
we would barricade ourselves in our room. We would ask our other daughter to barricade um, themselves in their room. Uh, we'd have the dog with us and literally lock our doors and let Nicola have whatever fit you know she was having. And that was even after, as Bill had described, how many medications Nick was prescribed, we would also give her Ativan because that was the only option to try and calm her down. And it would take anywhere from 30 minutes to two hours, depending on the day and how much she had gotten herself uh, wound up. And so then that was starting to spill out into the community. So Bill, once we realized just how bad it was getting with caregivers, like we didn't feel like we, we were afraid for the safety of caregivers, like other people, anyone but us, we were starting to fear having her near. And it's not, you know, obviously it's not Nicholas fault. It's just, it's the nature of the disability. We do believe that's probably a combination of the fact that with autism, sometimes you have comorbid disabilities. And, you know, part of this might have been her bipolar presenting. But Bill, why don't you share a little bit about what had to happen next? Yeah. So, you know, we sat at home that night, as as Wendy was saying, we were barricaded in our room while Nicola had a two-hour fit and smashed all kinds of things in our kitchen, glassware and you name it. And we knew we needed to get her to an inpatient mental health program. And in June of 2022, you know, we were calling our psychiatrists and talking to other folks. And really the only avenue available to us was to take Nicola to the emergency room. And, you know, we were advised that that was the front door to the mental health system that we needed to take because there really isn't anything else. And we sort of came to that realization. The next question was, can we get Nicola to the emergency room? Would she willingly go? And that morning, you know, we had sort of planned it. We tried to make, make sure we got to the emergency room when it was going to be a low volume period. It was like 830 in the morning. We were trying to get there, all of that. And Nick refused to go. So we did have to call the police to come to the house. And there were two police officers that stood by Nick in her bedroom and very gently spoke to her about her options, right? She could, you know, ride to the hospital in the police car and they could have the uh, the siren on and the lights <laughs> on so she could experience that. Or she could go in a fire truck mm-hmm. or she could go in mom and dad's car with uh, the police officer in the car in front. Um, and so 45 minutes of that conversation later, and Nicola agreed to get in our car and go to the hospital. And those police officers were amazing. They were. It was just, I am so impressed um, with those two officers that were here. They really made it possible for us to do this. And I will, uh, I'll always remember that when we walked into the lobby of the emergency department, I could see um, very inconspicuous security at each corner. So they had clearly prepared in case that Nicola had a fit, uh, which she did not have in the emergency room when we got there. But uh, I was really happy that they had taken the steps to make sure that Nick and others were going to be safe uh, as she made that trip into the ER. And so how long was she in the ER? So, you know, we, we went in with obviously the request to get into an inpatient program, and we didn't really know how long to expect that we would be there. But ultimately, she was there for six days. And the first day was pretty rough. Uh, Nick had a fit in the room. They had to clear everything out of the room that wasn't her and the bed and the TV mounted to the wall um, because they were doing that so that she wasn't going to pose a danger to uh, herself or anyone else. And so there was no stimulation at all. And she was just basically sitting there doing nothing for six days. And, and they had um, someone at the door. Yeah. And they had a, I think they called it a watcher. A sitter. A sitter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At the doorway to make sure that everything was okay. Uh, but Nick sat in that hospital room for six days. And we saw a different psychiatrist every day, every time via iPad, because they didn't have a psychiatrist that was in person on staff. The psychiatrist was always changing. So they were relying on the notes. The social worker changed every day. 
So there was no continuity in that care as they were trying to figure out where they might find a bed that Nicola could go to from an inpatient program perspective. Because Nicola was getting no stimulation and basically sitting there quietly in the room, Nicola didn't have any outbursts after those first couple days. And so she just sat there very calmly, very quietly, uh, without any real medication changes. And the psychiatrist came to us on day six and said, um, we're going to discharge Nicola back home because um, she's not presenting any danger now. And I'm like, well, of course she's not. She doesn't have any stimulation at all. She's sitting in literally a white and beige room doing nothing. And he said, but the emergency room isn't a place for her and there are no beds available. So really the only place for her to go is back to the home. So against our objections, the hospital released her and we hadn't been given anything different, right? Nicola's medications hadn't changed. We hadn't been given any guidance on what to do next. We hadn't uh, developed a crisis plan in terms of what to do. They'd given us a plan, but they'd only given us one part that was incomplete. The other two were not really options. And Bill, do you mind telling our listeners a little bit what that plan was, those three pieces? What? I don't remember. You don't remember? I don't remember. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) The three pieces, I believe they said that would be a success. They said uh, their autism team at part of Henry Ford said, you know, the three things we've seen families that are most successful after undergoing um, an ER experience is one, that parents get respite. So they get some support. Two, that the person that's in the, the person with the disability gets therapy. Um, and in this situation, it would be applied behavioral analysis therapy or ABA. And three, that the parents would get training. So they would have, like Bill had just mentioned, the behavior plan and then the crisis management plan in case something did go sideways. We had none of those things in place when we left the hospital. The only thing we had was an appointment so we could get more training. So in other words, on top of already taking care of Nick and where she was in her situation and a family already in crisis, the only thing that we were given was we needed to find more time to be trained. Other than that, there was no respite available, which is just a crisis here in Michigan. And to apply ABA therapy for adults is almost non-existent in our state. And so we protested. And in that discharge meeting, they acknowledged that none of those conditions had been met, but that the ER was the wrong place for her. So it was almost like she can't stay in the ER, even though there's nothing else for her to do. And we haven't done anything else, but she has to leave the ER regardless. Now, the one thing that did come out of that meeting that was positive was one of the health network individuals from the county said it could be possible that a residential group home option might be possible for her. And the other background on this is that we had been planning all along that we were going to try to get Nicola living in a place other than our home, because let's face it, someday we won't be around to take care of her anymore. That's right. And we wanted to make that transition happen sooner than later while Nicola was most able to absorb that change, while her brain was still as malleable as possible, right, to do that. And so we've been asking the question for a year. Yep. For 15 months, we've been asking the question. Yep. About what living options, residential options might Mm -hmm. be available to her. And we've been continually told there were none available. Interestingly, during that hospital discharge meeting, they said, well, we've actually reached out to 10 group home organizations and three have responded that they might be interested in taking Nicola. Which to me was, first of all, it was great, but it was also a little crazy that it was only because we were in crisis and in the emergency room that we actually got the attention of finding a place that might be a home where Nicola could live and and get the behavioral and living supports that she needed. I'd say it's an and, and an and because Nicola was a danger in the community. That was the big, because I mean, there are many families that I believe take their kids to ER that are trying to explore those options. But they're still not presented with those options either because it's still just in the home. 
Right. You know, so I guess that was maybe the first lifeline that we got out of this whole situation. And in hindsight, you know, looking back, it was the very best thing that came out of this. We did speak to a couple of those group home organizations within the, the next couple of days. They came out and visited Nick. They said, hey, we do believe that we could provide the right supports for her, but, you know, we don't have any availability to do that. Right? It could be, you know, we'll call you in five or six or eight months and tell you if we've got something, which was a lot different than what we'd been told to discharge, which is that this could happen in as little as a few days. But basically, they were throwing all of that back on us as parents to say, you're going to have to figure this out. After that, we did get a call from another group home organization that had just opened up a brand new house. And as a result, all of the beds in that house were available. And they came over and, and visited and met Nicola. And you know, Nick had a fit while the person from the group home organization was there. And as, as he observed it, he said to us, um, is this typical? And we said, yes, this is the you know, the behavior that we've been seeing. He said, we can handle this, no problem. And so at that point, we went and visited that group home. A couple of days later, we agreed it was a good fit. And we made the decision that we were going to move Nick in there. From that point of decision until move-in day was five weeks. And that was a long time for, given like what we were enduring each day. So the thing that I like to call, I like to call the show, um, let's plant houses. And, and, you know, I've talked a little bit about what that means. But what would you say was your plant tree moment where as parents, we had to make the impossible possible? To me, it was getting all of the different groups aligned so that Nicola could move into that home. And so we worked with one organization who did a fabulous job. It's Easter Seals of Michigan. That Amazing helped, group. Yeah, they helped create a behavioral plan and crisis plan that was building upon what Nicola had used in the schools. So she had graduated from high school or, or completed high school, I should say, in June with certificate. And um, then we also had the support of the Autism Alliance, which was amazing as well. Right. Yeah. So th- we, we had the plan and then we built upon that. And the group home was able to use that, for example, to create some of their intake that they needed for Nick from a behavioral perspective. So that was one piece. A second piece was we needed to get all of the alignment done between our local health and human services group here in the county to say, can we get Nicola approved to move into that home because it was out of county? And we had to go through one group and then we had to go to another group for approval and then actually denied Nicola's move because it was going to move funding out of our local county, even though there were no homes available in our county that could service Nicola and this home was available, they denied her placement. You know, at that point, we knew that we had to keep pushing because this was just, this was the opportunity. There wasn't anything else available to us on the It was the, the only bed in the state. So, you know, I started, uh, while we asked them to reconsider that rejection, we also started reaching out to some of our elected officials. And I was amazed how quickly I got calls back from our state senator and from our local state representative and from our U.S. representatives from the U.S. House of Representatives. We got calls back from their offices immediately. And they said, just let us know who you want us to call so we can advocate on your behalf. Fortunately, they didn't have to make any of those calls. So we got the denial on a Friday. On Monday, they came back and said, oh, no, we're actually that that she was never denied. Uh, the information had gone to a bad email address. And therefore, uh, we hadn't seen what we needed, but no, we're going to approve her. Um, I find it so ironic because 
the information actually wasn't sent via email. It was loaded into a portal. So the, uh, the, it was sent to a wrong email address. I'm making air quotes. Um, <laughs> was, you know, just a fabrication to sort of be a CYA for them. But the net net of that was that Nicola's approval was put in place so she could move. And then even from then, we had to wait almost 10 days to move her in because they only had specific days of the week that they would support somebody being moved into a group home because they wanted to make sure it was in the middle of the week, like a Tuesday or a Thursday, so there was going to be enough time before and after for transition support. And even things like staff meetings seemed to make the community mental health team unavailable to work through this. And again, reflecting on this in 2020 hindsight, it was like we weren't in crisis anymore. So people got to this when they got to it, but we were in crisis. We were hour by hour trying to manage what was going on in the house. We were trying to manage Nicola's environment to not create any unnecessary simulation. We were trying to find five minutes here and there for our own mental health because it was so stressful. We were not sleeping well. We were not eating well. We were trying to make sure that our other daughter was getting the supports that she needed in order to be successful. And so we were in crisis, but it didn't seem like any of the other groups that we interacted with were recognizing that that was the case for us. But in August, she was placed. She was placed. So what's a day in the life of our family now? How would you describe it? And for both us as well as Nicola. Yeah. So let's start with Nick. You know, she moved into the home. The early days were confusing for her, right? Mm -hmm. To not be living with mom and dad. She kept saying, I want to come back to, I want to come back home. And we had to be talking to her about, well, this is your home, right? That you're at right now, that you're not, you don't live at mom and dad's house. You live at your own house because you're an adult. But that was a transition that took some time. It was beneficial for Nicola that she was the first resident in the house. So in a lot of ways, they were able to set up the house to meet Nick's needs. And then as they added other residents, that they sort of built that around. So that was a real benefit for Nick that she didn't have to come into a group home that was already sort of established and running in a way where her needs might not have been as easily met. But now Nicola is um, enrolled in a vocational program in Lansing Public Schools. So she's going four days a week in the classroom, one day a week out in the community. She's learning similar post-secondary skills that she would have had had she been living in our home because we had her set up in a, in a vocational program. So she's doing that five days a week and getting out in the community, which is essential, right? She's learning how to have her own life outside of our home. And does she still have her fits and meltdowns? She does. But that team is able to address them as caregivers, not as parents. And I think that conflict of being a parent and a caregiver at the same time, in hindsight, we we recognize how hard that was because you can never be as objective as a caregiver needs to be while you're a parent. Right. It's just that they, they overlap. And so now that Nick is getting sort of that objective caregiving support, her outbursts are less and the team is able to handle them. And so that's been really great. And, um, you know, initially, again, Nick was calling us lots of times every day. <laughs> um, that has uh, tapered off into something that's much more manageable. She calls us a few times a week, talks on the phone, likes to FaceTime with us. But, you know, she's the longer she's there and she's been there a little over six months, the more that it becomes part of the life, the new life she's living. For us, you know, the early days were oh my gosh, are they going to kick her out and send her back? Mm -hmm. You know, we didn't know. We'd had so many experiences like that her whole life. Right. Was this was this fool's gold that was going to maybe work for a minute, but then not? And so I think the believing it was going to continue was something that took even a couple months 
to realize that it was still happening. And I think as we started to decompress from all of this, we realized that we were that analogy of the frog in the water that had been slowly boiled and you don't realize you're in it and you don't realize just how stressed out you are and how every part of your life has been anchored around this. And I mentioned in your first question, Wendy, around sort of us you know, getting married and, and Nicola being born right after that. We've never had a time where we were married that we weren't solving for Nicola. Right. And so this is the first time we've actually been able to, to do something different. And I think each month I find that I'm learning something different about what life can be like when you don't have to solve for this 24 hours a day. Um, and so I think, you know, we've put a premium on sleep and <laughs> you sure know, nutrition and exercise. And, you know, we've got uh, a couple of vacations planned. And, you know, these are things that we couldn't really prioritize when Nicola was here and we were solving for her all the time. Our, our other daughter is thriving since uh, Nicola moved into her house. Our other daughter comes out of the room a lot more. They've um, really blossomed with creativity around uh, creating music and, you know, writing and recording their own songs and uh, doing great at school. And so I think it's it's going to continue to be a journey, right? It's gonna, we're going to continue to find out what's ahead of us as, because I don't claim to believe that at six months we've got it all figured out and we've unwound, you know, two decades of the stress that we were dealing with. But every day it gets a little bit better. I would just add that I also like the fact that we're able to be parents to Nick because it is really hard to separate the parent and caregiving piece. And it's so much fun now. It's so much fun to spend time with her. So I really love that. Yeah, I fully agree because we can go take her out to lunch and then just drive her back to her, her house mm-hmm. and her caregivers are there waiting to take care of her and do other things with her. So it's, it is the blend that we needed to get to. I wish, and we've talked about this, that that the group home was closer to us so that we had a bit more local ability to take her out. It takes about an hour and a half each way to get there. But, you know, we're still doing that. And now that she's getting out of the house five-ish days a week, it feels great that to know that she's out in the community way more than if we were the ones that came in and took her out for a visit. So, Bill, with your experience having gone through this journey, how are you now sharing what you've learned with others? Yeah, thank you for that. You know, when we were going through this, we've talked about always feeling like we were first. And I know that we weren't, but that is how we felt. And it felt like whenever we asked a question, well, I don't know, you're, mm-hmm. I've not seen this before. And the access to resources that we could use, whether they were therapies or schools or support staff or caregivers, it was, it was always further than our arms would reach away. We couldn't, we couldn't grab it. And we want to make sure that we can turn our lived experience into an opportunity for others to not have to learn this stuff for the first time. We don't want anybody to feel like they have to be first. And so one of the things that we've been asked to do is to speak about our experience, particularly going through the the crisis management and the emergency department and the group home placement. So um, we've been to um, the state capitol, Lansing, to speak to the Autism Council, which is an appointed council. Uh, we've spoken to another group, which is the Office of Recipient Rights. Um, we've spoken to another group within DHHS, Department of Health and Human Services. So we're using our voice to try to make visible what we went through. And to me, one of the things that's been interesting about that is that these organizations where our elected and appointed officials are, who are 
responsible every day for the policy and the procedures and the funding that go around this, they seem amazed when they hear our story. They don't seem like they're getting a lot of firsthand stories from families that are going through this. And they're always really grateful that they are getting a chance to hear what really happens. And I remember, you know, one one meeting we were at, they said, oh, we hear that some people spend as long as a whole day in the emergency <laughs> room. And like, well, we were there for six days. Right. And they were their jaws dropped open. They had no idea. And I know we're not alone because I've talked to other families that are going through these week-long, multi-week-long emergency room stays because there isn't a bed available in the mental health system. So, you know, we're trying to raise awareness within the groups of people that can actually do something about this while also sharing our story with other families so that they don't feel like they're alone and they know that there are tools and supports available to them so that they can navigate what they need to for their family. So for my last question and what you just said kind of leads to it. So for families new on this journey, so families that have a recent diagnosis, that have a young child, what advice might you give them? The first thing I would say is let the diagnosis be something that you view as positive and that it gives you an idea what to do next, right? It's easy to say, to look at a diagnosis as a parent and say, oh my gosh, I failed my child. Did I cause this? Is there something in my biology or my genetics that caused this? Did I eat or take the wrong thing when I was pregnant? You can go down those rabbit holes, but at the end of the day, none of that stuff really matters. What matters is what you do. And so we are fortunate in Michigan now to have support systems in place like the Autism Alliance of Michigan that can help you figure out what to do next. You can call them. And so regardless of where you live, I would find those support organizations that can help you navigate things like, well, I suspect there might be something going on here. How do I get a diagnosis? Or, okay, now I've got a diagnosis, but I'm struggling with getting the school districts to do what I need them to do. Or I need to find a different type of uh, psychologist or psychiatrist to help with my child's needs. Okay, you can find access to those things. We need to figure out what they're going to do as they transition out of high school into whatever's next for them. There are lots of resources available. Go and find the organizations in your location that can bridge that for you because they they do exist. And if you can find access to the right resources, the quality of life opportunities are really big. And that can be both for the person with a disability, but also for their extended family. We know firsthand that it's hard on parents. Uh, We know from our daughter's experience that it's hard on siblings. We hear that all the time. It's hard on pets. It's hard on marriages. Um, It's hard on the ability to keep a job. So I think embrace when you learn what you think you know is going on and use that as a way to try to figure out what is the very best possible life that you and that person with this disability can live because there are lots of supports out there. You just got to, you got to work to find them. Well, thank you so much, Bill. I really appreciate you being here for our first session and I look forward to speaking with our future guests. And I thank you so much, all of our listeners for spending the time with us today. Thank you so much and let's plant houses. 